Well, in 2019, the end of 2019, Brother Steve, as usual in December, challenges us to read through the Bible in a year. And so the bookstore was selling, I don't know if you remember, they were those hardback brown Bibles, they were the one-year Bibles, and when you open them up, there was a place to take notes on both sides. Does anybody remember those? And so my wife and I have, have read through the Bible together, and we've read through it separately on multiple occasions, but we decided we were going to do this. And so we bought the hardback Bibles, and we were going to journal through, and we were excited about it, and we talked to our children about it, and they decided that they too we're going to read through the Bible in a year. At the time, they were five, seven, nine, and 11. And uh, I don't know about you, but that's three and a half chapters a day you have to read each day in order to read through the Bible in a year. I don't think I could have done that at five, or seven, or nine, or 11. And some of you are saying, I'm 48, and I've never read through the Bible, so I don't know. Because what happens? You get behind, and you miss a day, and all of a sudden, you got to read seven chapters. And all of a sudden, you're saying, I don't know if I can do this. And you miss two days, and you come in, you got to read over 10 chapters. You miss three days, all of a sudden it's 14 chapters, and you just give up. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if that's ever happened to you, but that happened to our children, and I knew it would happen because there was, it wasn't sustainable for them. And so we had to find a different program for them, a different rhythm for them, for their Bible study. But Sharon and I kept on, and I was excited about journaling. I was excited about what God was teaching me. And then all of a sudden, I got to one of the genealogies. Aren't they a blessing? You can't pronounce half the names. And we're probably pronouncing them wrong anyways. Brother Steve tells a story that when he was in Israel, he was telling a guy about Nehemiah. The guy said, who? He said, Nehemiah. He said, who's that? He said, you know, the guy in the Old Testament. He goes, oh, you mean Nehemiah. So we're saying, we, we don't know how to pronounce these names, so I want to go ahead and tell you as we get into the genealogy of Jesus, I'm going to pronounce them the best I can. I'm going to say it confidently, and we're just going to leave it at that, okay? But as I began to pray and ask the Lord, what would you have me share today? He kept taking me to Matthew chapter 1. I said, Lord, it's going to be really difficult to preach on the genealogy of Jesus, I don't know if I can get excited about it, but as the Lord took me there and as I began to dig in and, and, and be reminded, I got really excited. I'm going to share it with you here in just a moment. You're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter of the New Testament. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. There's a lot of names in there. There's a lot of names in there, but we're going to get through it together. You know, as I was asking the Lord, God, how do I get excited about this? He reminded me of two verses, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I would like to say to you, even the genealogies, every word that's written down in this book is exactly what God wanted us to have, and we have that. Some people would say, well, how can you prove it? All I know is, if God is omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, and all of those things, which we know he is, and people say, well, how could this be preserved all these years? If he can part the Red Sea, he can preserve every word he wants preserved. And so if it's in here, we better read it. If it's in here, we better look at it. And so I want us to look at verse 1 right here, and here's what it says. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Well, notice right off the bat, he gives three names in the very first verse. Obviously, the name of Jesus. Then gives the name of David, and he gives the name of Abraham. Now, what's interesting is, when he starts in verse 1, he starts with Jesus and works his way backwards. When he starts in verse 2 and goes through all 42 of those generations, he starts with Abraham and moves forward to Jesus. Most of the time when genealogies are written, it would start like if you go to Luke chapter 3, where we see the genealogy of Jesus, they start with Jesus and they work their way backwards. But when Matthew writes, he writes specifically, and he starts right here, because the best place to start anytime we start with anything is Jesus. You need to make a decision, go to Jesus. You have a problem, go to Jesus. You have a question, go to Jesus. You're working through something, go to Jesus. So where does Matthew start? He starts with Jesus. It's very important that we understand who Matthew's writing to. Matthew is writing to specifically a Jewish audience. Now think about this. The Jews have been studying this for so long in the Old Testament, and they have been looking forward to the coming Messiah. The Messiah has been prophesied. They're looking in the future for him. And what Matthew is saying, hey, the Old Testament is telling you that the Messiah is coming. I'm here to tell you the Messiah is Jesus. And so he says, Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus means Jehovah saves. Messiah means the anointed one. So here we have Jesus being born, and he is the anointed one. He is the one that has been prophesied about. And Matthew's wanting to make no mistake to his Jewish audience that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But then he has two other people that he mentions in verse 1. And then, by the way, he starts at the beginning there with Abraham in verse 2, and he mentions them again. So why is it? That specifically in verse 1, he mentions two people along with the name of Jesus. Well, because he's writing to a specifically Jewish audience, these two are pretty big names of the faith. All people in the Jewish culture knew Father Abraham, and they knew exactly who King David was. And so he was reminding them and showing them that Jesus came from the line of Abraham and David. All throughout the Old Testament, there's a bunch of different covenants, some man between man, some man between God and God between man. But there are five really significant covenants that we see when we look back at the Old Testament. And what we're going to see here in just a second is two of the men that those covenants were given to are mentioned here in verse 1, and that's very important. As a matter of fact, the first covenant, if we were to look back would be the Noahic covenant. It was a covenant given to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. You remember the covenant. God had flooded the entire earth, and uh, the, he had saved Noah and his family within the ark. The ark had come to rest. They had gotten out. They had worshiped the Lord. And then God had said, Noah, I will never flood the earth again. And then he gave us a symbol, by the way, which the devil is trying with everything he can to rip away from Christians but he gave us a symbol that he places in the sky to remind us the beautiful rainbow that God will never flood the earth again. Aren't you thankful that when God makes a promise, it always comes to fruition? The second one of those would be the Abrahamic covenant, which we can read about in a couple places, but specifically here in Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, 
Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God gives this beautiful covenant to Abraham that through his seed, through his lineage, one day God would bring someone who would be a blessing to all families, no matter the nation, tribe, or tongue. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant. I was reading in Matthew Henry's commentary on this specific covenant, and I love this quote that he says. He says, delays of promised mercies, though they exercise our patience, do not weaken God's promises. I wanna read it to you again. Delays of promised mercies, though they exercise our patience, do not weaken God's promises. Would you not believe that Abraham probably assumed when God had given him this covenant that he probably meant, God was probably meaning Abraham's son or maybe his son's son. He had no idea that over 42, over 40 generations were gonna pass before that covenant was gonna come to fruition. He didn't know that it was gonna come to fruition through Jesus Christ, but this covenant was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. It's amazing that when God says he's going to do something, he always does it. Always. There's never a question. You can bank on it. You can count on it. When God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. You know, you and I often don't live our lives that way. Oftentimes, we expect God to work within our timetable, our time frame, the time that I need it done. How many of you know that it's pretty rare that God's timetable and our timetable coincide? As a matter of fact, I'm trying to think back in my 38 years, and I honestly don't know if I've ever had a time where our timetable's matched up. Sometimes I think he's ready, and he just gives it a couple extra J's just to prove he's God. <laughs> but guess what? When we pray and we seek the Lord... We can trust that he hears us, and we can trust that he's going to do what is right. I was preaching a few years back at Bricky's Prison in Bricky's, Arkansas, and I met a guy after I was done preaching. He said, can I tell you my story? I said, absolutely. And he said that, I, that he had murdered a couple people, and that he was in prison for life. So we didn't talk much about that. He didn't share any more details to that, but he said, I will never leave this place. And he said, but I want you to know something. He said, I was an evil man. I did nothing for the Lord. I wasn't saved. I never lived for the Lord. I grew up in a little church, but I had a faithful mother that prayed. And he said she prayed from the time she found out I was pregnant till the time she was 85 years old. He said at the time I had been in prison seven years. And he said one of the guys from Bellevue came and preached here. And while he was preaching, he said the Holy Spirit convicted me and I got saved. And he said, this is what I know. God listened to my mama, although it didn't happen when she wanted it to happen. And God is rewarding her faithfulness to pray. He said, because you see, I got saved. And he said, there's not a lot to do here, but they'll let us take online classes. 
And I started attending Liberty University online, and he said, I graduated, and I got a degree in Bible. And he said, now, four or five days a week, I'm teaching Bible right here in the prison, and people are getting saved because of the faithfulness of my mama. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, for whatever reason he wants, with whomever he wants. And I want us to see throughout our time together today that God wants to use you. The third of those significant covenants is the Mosaic Covenant. This is where God told Moses, if you guys, if the Israelites will obey my commands, I'll make them a great nation. They'll be my people. They'll be a priesthood. How many of you know that uh, apart from Jesus Christ, we have no good in us? Apart from Jesus Christ, we can't do anything. As a matter of fact, Isaiah tells us that our best righteousness on our best day, apart from the Lord, Jesus Christ, is as filthy rags before the Lord. There's no way for you and I to work our way up to heaven, and so that is why God sends Emmanuel, which means God with us, to us, because we couldn't get to God, God came down to us. And so Jesus is fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant. The fourth one is the Davidic Covenant, the covenant that was made with David. You can read about it in two different places, but right here in 1 Chronicles 17, verse 11, it says, when your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you. This is Nathan speaking on behalf of God to David. Nathan the prophet speaking to, to David, and he's saying, when you die, one of your descendants will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. I will not take my loving kindness away from him. So I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. What is he saying? God is making a covenant with David that someone in his lineage, someone down the road, in his line, is going to be the king of kings. His kingdom will last forever. And God says, and I will not leave him like I did the one before you. He's speaking about King Saul. Remember King Saul? Before King David, the Bible says, and the spirit of God left him. And I tell you what, he was messed up at that point. And God makes a covenant with David that through his line, he's going to bring a king whose kingdom will last forever. Now, I know what they were thinking. They were thinking it was going to be a king that came who had big muscles. He was going to be on a big horse. He was going to have a big sword, and he was going to take over the world, and that no one would ever be able to overthrow their kingdom. But God was talking about something so much bigger. Because he wasn't talking about a king that was going to sit on some earthly throne that was going to be tossed away at some point. He was talking about the king of kings and lord of lords. He was talking about Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. As a matter of fact, it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Aren't you thankful that nobody is going to take over the kingdom of God? He is high and lifted up. He is seated on the throne, and no one can do anything about it. The last of the five significant covenants is the new covenant, which you can read about in Jeremiah 31, basically saying there's a new covenant coming. 
talking about the salvation of Jesus Christ. Think about Jesus in the upper room when they were having the Last Supper. He takes that cup and he says, this is the new covenant, my blood, which shall be for all people. And what does he do? He creates a way for you and I to have eternal life. And so all of these covenants are fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. And what Matthew is saying to this Jewish audience is, hey, the one that you call the father of your nation and the one that you call king, Jesus Christ came from their line. And he is the Messiah and he is the ones, the one you're looking for. Look at verse two in Matthew chapter one. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Well, he mentions four people by name and then mentions the brothers of Judah as well. It's interesting when we look at these guys, we, we see Abraham who we just spoke about. Uh, we see Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And you know, if you go back and you dig into their stories a little bit, these guys, uh, they had a lot of sin in their lives. Abraham lied on multiple occasions because he was afraid. Abraham was a coward and a liar. And also Abraham tried to take matters in his own hands. God said, I'm gonna give you a child. It didn't happen in Abraham's timetable or when he thought it should happen. So Abraham takes another woman as wife and has a child and says, there you go. Well, you know what? When you take matters into your own hands, you will always suffer the consequences. And Abraham did. Isaac and Jacob, they lied, they deceived, they stole. Judah sold his brother into slavery, slavery raised two very wicked sons. Isn't it interesting that we always put these people on pedestals because their names are written down in the Bible? But when we really stop and look at them, they're just like you and I. And by the way, when we look at Abraham and the sons, we, we see these sins. We'll get to David in just a moment. And when we look at him, a lot of people look at him and say, boy, he had a lot of sin in his life. Then he repented of that sin and God called him a man after his own heart. How could that be possible? Well, we're gonna talk about it in just a moment. Look at verse three. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Look at verse six. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. All right, there's a lot going on in here. There's a lot of stories. If we were to take and tell the story of every person mentioned in here, it would take us weeks and weeks and weeks. And by the way, I just wanna challenge you. There are 42 names listed here in the genealogy of Jesus right here in Matthew chapter one. I would challenge you to go back and read the, each one of those stories for each one of them and weave all those things together and just look, it's beautiful. The Bible is beautiful. We'll pick up books and read about fairy tales, but I'm telling you, this is the greatest story ever told, and it's true. And we say, well, you know, I just don't know if I can read that much. Well, the bottom line is, if it's the greatest thing ever told, it's the greatest book ever made, it's from God above and it's his words, why would we not fall in love with it? It's a beautiful story, but there's a lot going on in it. It's very fascinating that in Jewish custom, Jewish culture, it would be very rare 
for a woman's name to be mentioned in a genealogy was almost always, if not always, men, because the seeds passed down from the men. But isn't it fascinating that in the genealogy of Jesus, there are five women's names mentioned. We see Ruth and Rahab, Tamar, and then we see Bathsheba and Mary. Five, five ladies. Matthew honored those ladies by being in the lineage of Jesus as he put their names in here. It's interesting that he would draw attention to these five. I mean, there were other ladies as well. Why didn't he say Abraham was the father of Isaac by Sarah? He, he doesn't mention Sarah, who would be a matriarch of the Jewish faith. He doesn't mention Rachel or Rebecca. He doesn't mention any of those other big name ladies that we see, but he mentions these five. Some we know a little bit about, and some we know a lot about, but what's fascinating to me is right there in the middle, the, the third one is Ruth. Oh, what a beautiful story. Ruth's story is amazing. Uh, I would encourage you just one day, it's not a long book, but when you have some time, instead of turning on the TV or instead of spending the next three hours on Facebook, I would encourage you to take out your Bible and just read the book of Ruth. It is a beautiful picture of how God grafts us into his family, and he is the kinsman redeemer. But did you realize that Ruth was a Moabite? Ruth was not a Jew. As a matter of fact, three out of these five ladies were not Jews, which is interesting because you think about if it was gonna be in the lineage of Jesus, the line of Jesus was gonna come from the Jews, that all, everybody would be Jew, but, but she wasn't. As a matter of fact, not only was she not a Jew, she was a Moabite. And it's important to understand who the Moabites were. The Moabites were enemies. They were enemies of the Jews. Judges chapter 3, verse 28 says, He said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the, fo the fords and the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. Isn't it interesting that as we are beginning to look back at Jesus' genealogy, that it's made up of all kinds of people. It's made up of men. It's made up of women. It's made up of powerful kings. And all, we'll go all the way down to Joseph, his father, who was just a poor carpenter. There's a little bit of everybody in his lineage. There's a little bit of everybody when we look at his forefathers. There's a little bit of everybody. And doesn't it just want to make you smile? that Jesus didn't just come for a certain portion of people. He didn't just come to earth for the rich. He didn't just come to earth for the poor. He didn't just come to earth for a certain nationality or ethnicity or tongue. He came to earth for everybody. The Bible tells us that he loves all people. He died all, for all people. He created all people and he cares about you. And as we look back at his past, we see these people in his line that had a lot of sin, that had a lot of things that they did. As a matter of fact, we get to David here. It says in verse six, David was the father of Solomon. You know, David didn't do it all right. David had a lot of what a lot of people today will call mistakes. I, I, I just wanna say this to you. I am so sick of our culture and even a lot of people that sit in pews and call themselves Christians watering down sin. Sin is sin, plain and simple. When you decide to sin, it is against a holy God, it is not a mistake. 
David did make a mistake. He should have been on the battlefield. Instead, he was on the palace roof. That was a mistake. From there on out, it was sin. Quit calling your sin a mistake. Start calling it sin. We need more Nathans to stand up and call that out for us. I need someone to hold me accountable. Nathan comes to David after he had done horrible things, had someone killed and had a baby with a woman that wasn't his wife. I mean, he was doing some terrible things. Nathan comes to him and says, what are you doing? And then we go to Psalm 51. And David just pours his heart out to the Lord. To me, just my opinion, I think Psalm 51 is the most real, the most vulnerable passages in all of the Bible. It's also just one of the most beautifully written pieces in all of the Bible. Because we see a man who made, made a mistake and then sin after sin after sin after sin, but yet he came to a place where he totally and completely repented and then later on God calls him what? A man after his own heart. Isn't it a beautiful picture of the salvation of our Lord? Isn't it a beautiful picture that it doesn't matter what you have done in your past and it doesn't matter what you're doing now if you will repent of that? God will save you if you're not saved and God will use you if you are saved. I'm so thankful that God uses people like David. Look at verse seven. It says, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah. Verse nine, Uzziah was the father of Jotham and Jotham the father of Ahaz and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Stop. Did anybody else pick up on it? Ahaz is in the line of Jesus. Now, let me just refresh your memory. Ahaz was a bad guy. Ahaz was a king that not only wasn't walking with the Lord, he essentially found everything that the Lord said to do, and he did the opposite. That's basically what he did, and that's basically how he lived his life. As a matter of fact, it says in 2 Chronicles 28, 22, now in the, t- now in the time of his distress, this same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. Now, I want you to get this picture. He is unfaithful to the Lord. He is sacrificing babies to other idols. He's having people killed. He's having people murdered. He is burning people alive. This guy was not a good guy. He was not walking with the Lord. As a matter of fact, it says in 2 Kings 16, verse 2, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and even made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. This was a bad guy. He was not only bad, he was evil to his core. He was wicked. The Bible says he was wicked. No one wants to be known as wicked. He was a wicked man, and yet we find his name written down here as one of the ancestors of Jesus. Isn't it fascinating that God is using all kinds of people to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, the Messiah? Look 
at verse 10. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah. Some of these names you're like, oh yeah, I remember him. Some of them you're like, who in the world is that? Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shilatel. Shilatel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abahud. Abahud the father of Elikim. Elikim the father of Azar. Azar was the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Achim. Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar the father of Mathen. Mathen the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. There are multiple kings listed in this genealogy. Isn't it interesting that only one is called king, and that was David. Didn't say King Solomon, who was the king. Didn't say Ahaz, who was the king. It was just David. And it's all pointing to the fact that Jesus is coming, and he is going to fulfill all of these prophecies. He's going to fulfill all of these things. Isn't it interesting that when we look at this, we see kings that had all the money in the world, all the power in the world as being in the genealogy of Jesus all the way down to a very lowly, very humble, very poor woodworker. There's a little bit of everything in his ancestral tree. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Very interesting, you can study that. It's fascinating, all the stuff that goes into why there was 14, 14, and 14. Because it's interesting that sometimes in Jewish culture, they would actually remove a couple names out of a, a, a family tree so that they could have numbers that equal the same. It doesn't mean that they were taking truth away, what they were doing is representing something. And I would challenge you, because we don't have time, to go look and find why in the world it would say 14, 14, and 14. It's a fascinating study. And so I know what you're thinking as you sit here. Derek, and by the way, I've got the stopwatch right here. You've been going 31 minutes and 24 seconds, and you've given us zero points. And usually when you stand up there, you give three to 10 points, and they all start with the same letter. What are you doing? Well, there's a lot we could do here. We, we, we could talk about that 14, 14, and 14. We could talk about how we need to quit calling sin a mistake and just start calling it sin. We could talk about how Jesus is woven all through the Old Testament, how all of it is pointing to Jesus. We could talk about how the Lord always keeps his promises. That would be a great point to talk about, and we could sit right there for a long time. We could talk about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He said he's come to that you may have life and have it more abundantly. He did something they had never seen before because nobody could do it except Jesus Christ. We could talk about how the entire Old Testament is screaming, someone is coming, and the New Testament is screaming, it is Jesus. We could talk about all those things. They would all make great points. And I could have spent some time to alliterate them and they could have all started with the same letter. And maybe one day I'll preach those points. Maybe they'll all be individual sermons. But today I want us to walk away with one thing. I want us to walk away with only one thing that I believe every single one of us need to hear in this room, whether you are a Christian or you are not a Christian. We all need to hear this. And I believe a quote from John MacArthur will set it up best. 
This is what MacArthur says. If he, meaning God, called sinners by grace to be his forefathers, should we be surprised when he calls sinners by grace to be his descendants? Now, I want us to leave it on the screen for a minute. I want to read it one more time, and then I want to give you the point here. If he called sinners by grace to be his forefathers, should we be surprised when he calls sinners by grace to be his descendants? Here's the point I want us to walk away with today. Jesus can use you no matter what you have done. Jesus can use you no matter what you have done. And there is something that's happening inside of people today and it is being driven by an evil spirit. It is the devil at work that he is tempting us to sin. We are falling to sin left and right. There are people that aren't walking with the Lord and they're not saved because not only have they sinned against the holy God, but the devil has tricked them. By the way, the Bible tells us that he's the father of lies. He's the great deceiver. He has deceived you into thinking you have done something too big for God to forgive. Well, if you've been listening, he had some pretty messed up people in his family tree. You always hear the joke of, well, we're going to go to Thanksgiving dinner. We're going to have to be with all the family. Your family's not like our family. We've got some nuts. Well, at least you don't have an uncle like I do that sits at the end of the table and, you know. Man, if Jesus were to sit down and talk about all these people in his past, it's amazing. But the beauty of it is this, that God takes all of these people and out of the ashes he brings beauty. John chapter 3, verse 16, the most familiar verse, and you have to use this at Christmas time because it is the centerpiece to why we celebrate Christmas. For God so loved the world, everybody, not just a specific people group, not just a specific tongue, but all people. He created all people. He came to earth for all people. He loves the whole world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Don't, they don't have to experience that separation from God, but have eternal life. Do you remember the Davidic covenant where God told David, I'm going to bring a king in your line that's going to set up a kingdom that will last forever. And where they thought it was going to be a temporal, physical, on this earth throne, Jesus was talking about something so much bigger. And he fulfilled that promise by sending his son to come to earth, to be born a miraculous birth, to live a perfect life, to die a horrific death, but to raise a victorious resurrection so that you and I can experience eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isaiah 61 verse 3 says, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What is he saying here? He can bring beauty out of ashes. He can use you, no matter what you've done. Isaiah 43, 19, behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. 
He makes rivers in the desert. He can do whatever he wants. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. He had gone into a rich man's house. He had been thrown in prison, and now he was second in command, and God was utilizing him to preserve hundreds and thousands and millions of people by the food and by everything that they had gathered together. And Joseph is looking at his brothers, and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. He brings good out of evil. Galatians chapter three, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. God made a covenant with Abraham with you in mind. God made a covenant with David with you in mind. And it does not matter what you have done, it is not too big for our God. Because on that first Christmas morning, God sent his son, and after 33 years, they nailed him to a cross and by the way, when he was on that cross, there were two men nailed beside him. And one of them, was, they were murderers. And one of them talked to Jesus, and Jesus told that man, that murderer, that person on the cross, you'll be with me today in paradise. Do not tell me God can't save you. Do not tell me God cannot use you. Do not tell me that God doesn't have a plan for your life. Because if he took all of this mess in the Old Testament and used it for the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm pretty sure he can use each and every one of us in this room. So what is the application for today? Who is this message for? I want you to look right here for just a moment. This message is for you. It's not for your spouse, it's not for your children, it's not for the person across the aisle, it's not for somebody up in the balcony, it is specifically for you. Whether you are saved and you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, you're just here checking things out, it's for you. If you're not a Christian, I want you to hear this, the devil wants you to believe that you have done so much wrong that God cannot save you and God cannot use you. And I'm here to proclaim to you today, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. He can save you. He can snatch you out of the miry clay. He can set your feet on the solid rock and he can save you. Monday, as I began praying, I'm not gonna tell you this was a feeling, not a feeling like goosebumps or anything, but the Holy Spirit impressed upon me that somebody today was gonna to be sitting in this room or watching online with us that are not a Christian. They're not saved. And the reality of it is, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are going to die and you're gonna spend an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. And every time those words exit my mouth, there's that little, little bitty splinter of the devil saying, ha, how could he be a loving God? 
But then I'm reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he took all of that for you and I on that first Christmas morning where he humbled himself and stepped out of glory and came to earth in the form of a little baby and allowed himself to lay his life down on a cross and die a horrific death and pay that payment that you and I owe for our sin. The Bible is clear, all of us have sinned. Everybody has sinned, we've all done stuff. As a matter of fact, if we were to write something about ourselves, it would probably fall in here and it wouldn't be the good, it would be the wicked. Because we have all sinned, we have all fallen short and the payments, the wages for that sin is an eternity separated from God. And if you leave the story right there, it sounds horrible. But it just makes the gospel of Jesus Christ that much more glorious. That God would love us so much, he would not leave us there. And so if you're not a Christian today, I want to look you in the eyes and I want to say to you today, it doesn't matter what you've done. You said, Derek, you don't understand. I've lived an immoral lifestyle. Derek, I've lied. I've had hatred. I've had bitterness. Somebody may be sitting in here or watching online and say, I've actually killed somebody or I've hated people or I have addictions. I have problems. Guess what? His lineage this family tree is a disaster. It is full of people just like that. And out of that, God did something amazing. He can save you. He loves you. He cares about you. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. I believe the Lord has told me to tell somebody today, you don't have much more time. Your time is running out and God is saying to you, I love you, I don't care what you've done, I've already paid for it. And so in just a moment, when we have our time of invitation, I want you to walk forward and give your life to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe you say, I, I don't know if I can do that, or maybe you're watching online, you don't have the ability to walk forward. If you'll text the word Jesus to 901-901, someone from our team will get with you quickly and we'll walk through that. Maybe you are saved. You're, you're a believer, you're a Christian, you've been saved a long time. You go to church, you, 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 you know what Christmas is all about, you understand Easter, you understand the gospel, you read your Bible when, when you can and all of those things, but there's some hidden sins in your life. There's some unconfessed things that's caused a little division between you and the Lord. How many of you, if you are married, know that if there's a little bit of an argument or if you do something, men, I know the women, wouldn't, but men, every once in a while, we do something we're not supposed to or we say something we weren't supposed to. Now, I haven't done that today, but you know, I've only saw my wife for about five minutes right there, okay? So there's still plenty of time for me to make that mistake, okay? But how many of you know when that happens that there's a little bit of division? And unless you come back together and you walk through that, there's gonna be another one later and another one tomorrow and it just causes more division and more division. I'm here to say that if you're a Christian and you've got sin in your life, maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe it's alcoholism. Maybe it's hatred. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's anger. I don't know what it is. But maybe there's something in your life that's unconfessed and it's unrepentant sin. And just as we would look at an unbeliever and say, you need to repent of your sin and follow Jesus, I'm here to say, you need to repent of your sin. You need to come back to the Lord, just like David did in Psalm 51. So maybe you're a Christian here today, and you 
have sin in your life that you need to deal with. And I would say the same thing to you. There's an urgency in Scripture. There's an urgency when you read Paul's epistles. There's an urgency when you hear Peter preach. There's an urgency when you read all throughout the Bible that Jesus is coming back. Let me ask you a question. If you're a Christian and you say, I know for a fact when I die I'm going to go to heaven, do you want him to come back today with all this unrepentant, unconfessed sin, hidden sin in your life? Well, if I, if I deal with it, someone else may find out and it may cause a problem. The bottom line is we have to do what God tells us to do. And I want to encourage you today to repent of that. And then lastly, maybe you're a Christian and you don't have any unrepentant sin in your life and you've been confessing the, uh, to the Lord your sin and you feel like you're walking with the Lord. This is what I want to say to you. I want to challenge you to not let this Christmas, this December, just become all about the lights and the glitter and the candied apples and the pecans and all that stuff that we love and who gets what color Christmas wrapping paper and how your child smiled when they sat on Santa's lap at Bass Pro and all of that stuff. Because at the end of the day, it matters that much. I would encourage you to live out what it calls us to do. The Old Testament is screaming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. The New Testament is screaming, he came, his name's Jesus. He came, his name's Jesus. And God is calling each and every one of us to go out into this dark world and be lights for Jesus and scream the same thing. His name is Jesus and he's coming again. Let this Christmas be about Jesus.